This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today, I want to talk about the Elon Musk acquisition of Twitter and how it relates to spaces like Exvangelical. Now, as far as social networking sites that most people in my direct orbit don't even use go, Twitter has played an outsized role in my life. In fact, it's changed it in many ways. And now, Twitter itself is changing ownership, having been successfully purchased by the world's richest man. And now is a good time as any to reflect on how this relatively small site, in comparison to social behemoths like Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok, have made my world bigger, brighter, and bleaker. When I first signed up for Twitter 13 years ago this month, it was primarily to follow comic book artists and writers. Following the demise of Google Reader, I started using Twitter as an RSS replacement, following my favorite sites and writers directly. And as someone who's oriented to perusing text over perusing images, I was drawn to Twitter even as it began to be rapidly eclipsed by Instagram and other platforms. It was a way to, you know, supposedly stay ahead of the U.S. English-speaking news cycles that would drive conversation elsewhere, a trend that still, by and large, continues today. Most cable network news coverage of the Trump administration was driven by whatever fresh horror Trump would announce to the world via tweet, and the news and commentary cycle is still driven by the engine of Twitter, and that engine is fueled on outrage and hot takes. But via Twitter, I was able to learn by listening or following voices I would not have otherwise found. This became especially true in 2014, following the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the protests that followed there. I could follow black people and learn about their struggle against police violence and other forms of systemic racism in America. My own use and experience of Twitter would change in 2016. That year, I started the podcast you're listening to right now. And from that, I would eventually start using the hashtag Exvangelical. It was there, amid the chaos of Twitter, that I met strangers who related to being estranged from their faith communities. One of the original admins of the Exvangelical Facebook group was someone who had found me on Twitter. It was via Twitter that I connected with Chrissy Stroop, who rapidly built a following in the aftermath of the 2016 election because of her expertise in both white evangelicalism and Russian politics. She would later create a series of hashtags such as empty the pews and expose Christian schools that would trend and call attention to various aspects of growing up 
and living in white evangelical culture. We've become friends and collaborated in various ways ever since. It was via Twitter that I met Emily Joy Allison, who would start the Church2 hashtag and kick off a reckoning regarding abuse in church settings. It was via Twitter that I would meet a parade of people whom I would never have known otherwise. So many, if not most, of the people who've appeared on my shows have been people I have met on Twitter. I highlight Chrissy and Emily in particular because their work is public and widespread, and because they both used the simple tool of a hashtag and shared their stories on Twitter, which by default is broadly public and prone to viral spread. A key asset of Twitter has been that it gives counterpublics a fighting chance. Now, counterpublics are an idea that was first presented in 2002 by Michael Warner in their book, Publics and Counterpublics. It's also a useful framework to understand the role of contemporary social media. As stated in the introduction of the book, Hashtag Activism, quote, in this book, we argue for the importance of the digital labor of raced and gendered counterpublics, ordinary African-Americans, women, transgender people, and others aligned with racial justice and feminist causes have long been excluded from elite media spaces, yet have repurposed Twitter in particular to make identity-based cultural and political demands, and in doing so have forever changed national consciousness. From Black Lives Matter to Me Too, hashtags have been the lingua franca of this phenomenon. Within the context of my own work, highlighting the personal stories of people who've left white evangelicalism and critiquing the systems and institutions that support evangelicalism, this feature of Twitter has been absolutely crucial Without Twitter, these stories would not have received the attention of the broader media starting in 2017. And Karina Laughlin, in particular, mentions exvangelical politics, um, sorry, not politics, podcasts explicitly in the context of counterpublics and her book, Redeem All. Quote, like the hashtag movements chronicled in chapter four, these podcasts have the potential to connect and galvanize counterpublics by highlighting and amplifying voices that speak out against the evangelical power structure represented by Bible colleges, churches, and parachurch organizations and other sites of cultural power. And the vague fear that many people have is that the types of challenges to the powerful that have been made possible via these hashtags and counterpublics in a Musk-owned Twitter may be undermined and I don't think it's entirely unfounded. Now, I am not a rosy-eyed techno-optimist, though I've been that before. Twitter itself, for all that it has brought me, also disabused me of such optimism and taught me a much more pragmatic and realistic way to relate to social media overall. Over time, as evangelical culture and content was being posted to Twitter, it inevitably got chaotic and dramatic traumatic. Some things, like the initial commonality being rooted in shared and similar traumas, were specific to this population. Other forms of conflict are more general to any interest-based group. A burnout on the part of creators, a burnout among consumers or the audience about niche content after their own interest in the niche waned or their need for the content dissipated, conflicts between people, etc., Exvangelical spaces have not been ex accepted from this. 
Now, I speak in general, general, generalities for two reasons. Specific instances of online conflict or drama are very difficult to summarize because they require backstory and preamble and a retelling of things. And secondly, revisiting them is generally fruitless and potentially re-traumatizing. But after my own round of, quote, drama that coincided simultaneously with another trauma in my personal life, I changed my relationship to Twitter and social media. I learned to recognize when my own emotions became entangled in the reactions of others. I learned to become even more articulate with my language, as well as articulating the purpose of things like community and following. It's an ongoing process, and the dynamism of social media and its role as both personal communications and broadcast platforms means that those relationships are constantly being reevaluated. In particular, I've learned to view social media explicitly as a tool to express aspects of identity, and not as one that is the summation of identity. In this context, for example, you can be both exvangelical and atheist, or exvangelical and straight, or exvangelical and queer, or exvangelical and other modifier. Most terms you use online or elsewhere to describe yourself are not totalizing. But in keeping with Twitter's outsized influence on bigger sites, the exvangelical hashtag jumped from network to network. While Exvangelical started on Twitter, it later jumped to Instagram, where it has over 82,000 public uses on posts as of this week, and to TikTok, where as of this week it has over 600, I'm sorry, 765 million views. Accounts have generated followings, groups have created communities, and all have contributed to an overall culture. Following the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection, when Christian nationalist imagery was abundant in the footage of the rioters who invaded the Capitol building, white evangelicals began working to undermine the counterpublics that had sprung up in recent years via the constellation of related hashtags like Exvangelical, Deconstruction, Decolonize, Church 2, Leave Loud, Empty the Pews, Expose Christian st Schools, among others. Sites like the Gospel Coalition began running stories decrying deconstruction, David Jeremiah said exvangelicals were the sign of the end times from the pulpit. And just this year, Christianity Today ran cover stories about deconstruction. They seek to counter the counterpublics, which is understandable from their perspective. However, the imbalances that exist in the world beyond the glass rectangles where our culture wars are waged are very stark. And while they're not visible within the information environment itself, they are visible in other areas, particularly with regard to access to capital, both political and financial. Entrenched white evangelical interests drive GOP politics almost exclusively, for example, and they have ample attention in and access to mainstream, quote, liberal media, as well as their own media ecosystems and complementary coverage in the conservative media sphere. It's within the context of these real-world power and capital imbalances that my uncertainties lie. Will a Musk-run Twitter allow such counterpublics to flourish? Twitter already has imbalances, such as blue check privilege for verified users, or the way that naturally anyone with an established platform or celebrity accumulate clout in any new media environment they enter, etc. 
My fear, which you may share, is that the counterpublics that have grown on Twitter will run afoul of Musk's supposed free speech absolutism in the process of calling him or others who wield great power into account. Judd Legum has already compiled a number of examples of, of this in a piece on, on his substack, Popular Information, called Musk is a free speech absolutist, except when he's not. As far as Twitter the company goes, anyone who guesses on its future is taking a shot in the dark. As far as Twitter the culture, the living thing and the lively conversation it has enabled, that is what I'm worried for. Living things change and evolve constantly, so we will see what this new evolution brings and whether it can remain host to the types of dialogue or good content that makes putting up with all of its bad aspects. Twitter has always been small in comparison to its peers, but I have loved and loathed it, just as any chronic Twitter user does. It is rife with abuse and beset with all manner of chronic problems, but it was what we had, and we made do with it. So even if its role in society changes, and it eventually no longer is no longer host to the public conversation, as it were, I remain grateful for its role in my life. You would more than likely not be reading this, or know, or listening to this, or know who I am, were it not for Twitter. I'm sure many others can say the same. Whether that's enough to get us to stay through whatever comes next, that's the question we're all asking. Thank you very much for listening. This has been an audio essay um, and an adaptation of, a, of an essay I wrote for the Post-Evangelical Post. Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post. You can find more of my writing at postevangelicalpost.com, and you can support it directly at 4 6 or $8 a month. I donate 25% of net proceeds each month to organizations that serve populations harmed by white evangelicalism. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at brchastain underscore. As I've mentioned in a prior episode, I uh, do have some other interviews coming and they will be posted soon. I do need to send them to another editor. I have had a uh, recent surgery on my ears and actually can't even listen to anything in both ears right now. So me editing <laughs> these things is not going to be valuable to, to most people. Um, so I am in the process of, uh, uh, identifying a new editor to take that on so that I can post these wonderful interviews that I've recorded for you to enjoy. All right. Talk to you soon.